turbulent time in Israel's history. We've seen Absalom rebel against his father, King David. And Absalom's intention was to claim the throne and wipe out David and his followers. Absalom seemed to have the upper hand. He certainly had the bigger army by far. But we have seen that Absalom could not win. He couldn't win because no matter how strong he seemed to be, we were told the Lord had determined to bring disaster on him. That is what the text told us. And the reason was David is God's anointed king. And in the end, every rebellion against God's king is doomed to fail. As we've looked at this, we've seen how this record of David's reign teaches us a lot about Jesus' reign. Jesus is God's eternal king, and his kingdom cannot fail. No enemy can overthrow him. In the end, all his enemies will go the way of Absalom, crushed under God's wrath. That's where we left things last week. David's army won the battle in the forest of Ephraim. Absalom was killed in that battle and his army scattered at the end of the battle. So today, as we read on, we might expect to find a celebration of victory. But that is not what we find. Instead, we see the pain of victory. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 18. It's page 323 in the Church Bibles and in the large print 498. We're going to pick up at chapter 18, verse 19, and we'll read through to chapter 19, verse 8. And just to make sure we're clear in the context here, what has just happened is that David's army has won a decisive victory over Absalom's forces. And that victory included the gory death of Absalom himself. Verse 19 says, Now Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, said, Let me run and take the news to the king that the Lord has vindicated him by delivering him from the hand of his enemies. You are not the one to take the news today, Joab told him. You may take the news another time, but you must not do so today because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to a Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed down before Joab and ran off. Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, again said to Joab, Come what may, please, let me go run behind the Cushite. But Joab replied, My son, why do you want to go? You don't have any news that will bring you a reward. He said, Come what may, I want to run. So Joab said, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by way of the plain and outran the Cushite. While David was sitting between the inner and outer gates, the watchman went up to the roof of the gateway by the wall. As he looked out, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out to the king and reported it. The king said, if he is alone, he must have good news. And the runner came closer and closer. Then the watchman saw another runner, and he called down to the gatekeeper, look, another man running alone. The king said, he must be bringing good news too. The watchman said, it seems to me 
that the first one runs like Ahimaaz, son of Zadok. He's a good man, the king said. He comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz called out to the king, All is well! He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, Praise be to the Lord your God. He has delivered up those who lifted their hands against my lord the king. The king asked, Is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimaaz answered, I saw great confusion just as Joab was about to send the king's servant and me, your servant, but I don't know what it was. The king said, stand aside and wait here. So he stepped aside and stood there. Then the Cushite arrived and said, my lord, the king, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Joab was told, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And for the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning. Because on that day, the troops heard it said, the king is grieving for his son. The men stole into the city that day as men steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab went into the house to the king and said, Today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth till now. So the king got up and took his seat in the gateway. When the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. Meanwhile, the Israelites had fled to their homes. This is God's word. And in the first section of this passage, we find good news of God's justice. That is what happened in the forest of Ephraim. God preserved David, his anointed king. And God crushed Absalom, the enemy of his anointed king. The alternative would have been the overthrow of God's king. And the reign of a king who was all about himself. Israel would have suffered under Absalom's rule. It is good that God stepped in. 
It's good that he frustrated Absalom's grab for power. This was a deliverance for God's faithful people. And they are buzzing with victory. One of them wants to be the first to tell David. Look again at chapter 18, verse 19. Now Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and take the news to the king that the Lord has vindicated him by delivering him from the hand of his enemies. Ahimaaz has been heavily invested in this whole conflict. His father is Zadok the priest. And when David left Jerusalem, fleeing from Absalom, David sent Zadok back to Jerusalem to be his inside man, one of his spies. Whenever Zadok had crucial news for David about Absalom's plans, Ahimaaz and another man had the job of getting that message to David. And they ended up having to hide down a well to escape from Absalom's men. We read about that in chapter 17. So Ahimaaz has risked his life at least once for David, maybe more. He risked his life that previous time to bring David news of great danger. And now he wants the honor of taking news of victory to the king. Good news. Ahimaaz describes it perfectly. It's news that the Lord has vindicated David by delivering him from the hand of his enemies. Vindicated is a legal word. The Lord has justly overthrown the rebel and he has preserved his anointed king. It's good news. And Ahimaaz cannot wait to deliver it. We can imagine him hopping from one foot to the other, waiting for Joab just to give him the go-ahead. But Joab says no. He knows David isn't going to welcome this good news because, in verse 20, the king's son is dead. Joab just isn't sure what David will do when he gets this news. And he likes Ahimaaz too well to send him. Instead, Joab sends a non-Israelite, a Cushite. Joab is not so bothered what happens to him. The Cushite runs off, but Ahimaaz won't be put off. Please let me go, Joab, please. And eventually he just wears Joab down. Joab decides, well, it won't hurt to let him go now. The Cushite will arrive there first anyway. But Ahimaaz is pumped up, and he takes a faster route. He manages to get himself in front of the Cushite. And while this race is going on, verse 24 shows us David sitting, waiting for news. This is the only time he is called David in this passage. It's always the king, apart from this one verse. And I suspect that is intentional. Here, in verse 24, we have not the king of Israel waiting for news of a battle, This is David, the father, waiting for news of his son. And we get the impression he's been able to think of nothing else since his troops left. Now we've already seen these two runners are bringing good news. There's no argument about that. God has vindicated his kingdom and his king. 
But we also know from David's perspective, the news will only be good news if he hears two things. Yes, he wants the rebellion to be crushed, but he also wants Absalom to be preserved. When David sent his troops out, he told his commanders, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. Crush the rebellion, but preserve the leader of the rebellion. That is the good news David's longing for. But we know that kind of good news is impossible. Before the battle, we were told, the Lord had determined to bring disaster on Absalom. Why? Because vindicating God's Christ meant crushing Absalom, the Antichrist. If Absalom had repented and sought forgiveness, yes, it might have been different. But Absalom was defiant to the very end. And so the good news David hopes for is impossible. But David waits hour after hour. And finally, the watchman on the roof sees someone in the distance. He shouts down to David in verse 27. He runs like Ahimaaz, son of Zadok. I'm trying to imagine what made his run so recognizable. Did he swing his arms funny? Did he throw his head back? Whatever it was, he was famous for the way he ran. Even from a great distance, people can say, there goes Ahimaaz. In any case, Ahimaaz gets his wish. He arrives first. He gets to see David's face when David hears the good news. Verse 28, Ahimaaz called out to the king, all is well. He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, praise be to the Lord your God. He has delivered up those who lifted their hands against my Lord the king. The king asked, is the young man Absalom safe? David's reaction must have been a shock to Ahimaaz. We said David is waiting for double-sided good news. And now we know which side he cares about most. He brushes off the news of victory. Just tell me about Absalom. And maybe now it finally dawns on Ahimaaz. My good news is not the good news David wants to hear. And Ahimaaz mumbles something noncommittal in verse 29. I saw great confusion just as Joab was about to send the king's servant and me your servant, but I don't know what it was. In other words, I wish I hadn't come. I wish I was anywhere but here. Now I know why Joab tried to stop me. David tells Ahimaaz to get out of the way so he can hear the Cushite who's just arrived. Verse 31, the Cushite arrived and said, My lord, the king, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king asked the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man which means, may they be crushed as Absalom has been crushed. 
the Cushite confronts David with a tough reality. Deliverance for God's king means disaster for the king's enemies. The success of God's kingdom means destruction for those who oppose God's kingdom. One writer spells this out for us, and he shows how it applies today too. If the kingdom of God, under God's chosen king, is to be saved, then the enemy who assaults the kingdom must be destroyed. God gives no secure salvation to his church unless he brings decisive judgment on her enemies. In the Old Testament, we see God's kingdom most clearly in David's reign as king of Israel. Today, God's kingdom is not seen in any one nation. It's seen in the church of Jesus Christ. He is our king, and we are the members of his kingdom. And when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil, When we pray those words, we're not just asking God to help us overcome temptation. We're asking him to deliver us from enemies. From those who oppose God's kingdom and God's king. And can you see, that involves God's judgment falling on those enemies. Yes, some of them will bow the knee to Christ. And they will come under his rule and be part of his kingdom. Some of them will, but many of them will not. When God vindicates his king and preserves his kingdom, that may mean the destruction of those you and I want to see saved. Neighbors members of our family, maybe even our own children. We've seen very clearly in the first part of this passage, the vindication of God's king is good news. It means salvation and life for God's people. Salvation is good news of great joy. But now we see there is another side to it. The grief of salvation. The Cushite has delivered his news. The king's enemies are dead, including Absalom. And now we read in verse 33, the king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Joab was told, The king is weeping and mourning for Absalom and for the whole army. The victory that day was turned into mourning because on that day the troops heard it said, The king is grieving for his son. The men stole into the city that day as men steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, Oh, my son Absalom, 
O Absalom, my son, my son. As we look at David here, as we listen to David's anguish, we are seeing and hearing the pain of victory. Can we criticize David for his grief? Is his emotion wrong? No. Listen to the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Paul here is lamenting not a son, but his countrymen, the Jews. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Why was Paul in such anguish? It was because the people of Israel had rejected God's Messiah, Jesus. That made them the objects of God's wrath, headed for destruction. That's what Paul goes on to explain in chapter 9 of Romans. It is not wrong to feel deeply and grieve deeply for those who are lost. We've heard from Paul. Listen to Jesus and look at him in his, his anguish over the city of Jerusalem. In Luke's gospel we read, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known in this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. The time of God's coming to them was the time of Jesus' coming. God sent them their Messiah in the person of Jesus. But they rebelled against him. They rejected his rule and his kingdom. And here Jesus weeps over the destruction that's coming to him. Jesus teaches us it is not wrong to feel deep emotion over those who are lost. And in David's case, his grief comes not only from love for a son. David knows his own sin played a big part in this mess. Absalom is fully responsible for what he's done and the choices he made. It's right that Absalom be held responsible. But part of David's grief here is that he knows he, as a father, has not done all things well. In the aftermath of David's sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah, Nathan delivered God's message. The sword will never depart from your house. Yes, David, you have repented. You are forgiven. You're not going to die. 
But you will live to see the consequences of this play out in your own family. And now, several years later, David weeps bitterly. He's been saved, he's forgiven, but he knows he deserved to die. It's only by God's grace that David was brought to repentance and spared while Absalom was destroyed. And as you and I watch David, and as we hear from Paul and from Jesus, we are being set free to grieve over those who are lost. We are not somehow dishonoring Christ if we weep for our families. Whenever we meet here on Sundays, we can be honest. Even as we celebrate Jesus' ultimate victory, even as we look forward to that day, we can be honest about the pain of victory. The victory of Christ and his kingdom will mean destruction for those who defy him and disown him. Those who refuse to give him his rightful place of authority. And some of those people are people we love. There will be moments for us when our grief over those who are lost almost overwhelms our joy at being saved. And that is okay. We have permission to grieve like that. And we know our own lives have not been what they could have been. Our parenting and our witness have not been what they could have been. And that plays a part in our grief. But we have to notice here Somewhere in his grief, somewhere in his legitimate grief, David crosses over a line. Look closely again at the effects of David's mourning for Absalom in verse 2. For the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning. Because on that day, the troops heard it said, the king is grieving for his son. The men stole into the city that day as men stealing who are ashamed when they flee from battle. In verse 2, the word victory is literally salvation. This is the day of God's salvation for his Messiah and his kingdom. Normally, a victory would be celebrated with music and with dancing. But David's grief has come to dominate this day. So much so that his troops steal back into the city. Like men who are ashamed. Like men who've lost the battle. These are loyal soldiers. These are people who've risked their lives for David. They've won a great salvation. But they're made to feel their victory was wrong somehow. David has crossed over a line. His sorrow for Absalom was appropriate. It was sorrow for a son that he loved, his own flesh and blood. 
But the loss of Absalom has become all that David can see in this situation. His sorrow is blinding him to a great blessing. As strong as his bond with Absalom was, David has greater bonds with these men. His bonds with them go beyond flesh and blood. They're bound together as members of God's kingdom. But here, David is showing more affinity for those against God's king than he is for those with God's king. Joab is the commander of David's armies. And he will not allow this to go on. Verse 5, Joab went into the house of the king and said, Today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth till now. We know Joab pretty well by this point. And we know Joab does not have a subtle bone in his whole body. He is an insensitive man. But here, he's right. Maybe he puts things in an overly harsh way. Maybe he's overstating things to make his point. But his point is right. In verse 5, he reminds David, Absalom wasn't the only member of David's family. These warriors, tiptoeing into the city, made to feel ashamed of their victory, they have acted to save David's loyal sons and daughters and wives and concubines. We've already seen Absalom rip ten of David's concubines those he found in Jerusalem. That was back in chapter 16. Absalom made no secret. His goal was the destruction of David, David's family, and David's supporters. So yes, David's grief for Absalom is appropriate. Absalom is a lost son. But David needs to balance his grief with this reality. These loyal troops are more family to David than Absalom ever was. David's bond with Absalom was a bond of blood. And that is powerful. But with these troops, David has a bond of love and loyalty. These men are for God's kingdom and God's king. And in the end, that means more than blood. Joab says in verse 7, go out and encourage your man. Literally, speak to the heart of your man. Before Absalom's death, David and Absalom had not spoken properly for years. The rift between them was that deep. But these people around David now, they're the ones who shared life with him. 
They're the ones who made the long walk from Jerusalem with him, out here into the wilderness, so they could stand with their king. Joab says to David, these are your sons and your brothers. These are the ones who go through fire and water for you. So speak to their hearts. Let them know you love them. Joab saying, we understand that you loved Absalom, but don't you love these people too? In the end, don't your bonds with these people mean even more than bonds of blood? Notice in verse 7, Joab doesn't deny the trouble David has seen. His life has been full of calamities from his youth. But Joab says, the greatest calamity would be to lose these people. It would be the greatest calamity because these are your people, David. This is your family. Joab's words get through to David. And look at the picture we end with at the beginning of verse 8. So the king got up and took his seat in the gateway. When the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. Our passage closes with a picture of the king and his people. And notice David isn't dancing. He's not celebrating. He's not at that stage yet. But he's no longer withdrawn from his people. He is with those who are true family to him. And somehow you and I have to chew this over in our minds. The greatest bonds you and I can have are not bonds of blood. As strong as those can be. Our greatest bonds are with those who are loyal to God's king. Those bonds are eternal. Those are the bonds where we find true fellowship. Maybe for some of us, this is an easy truth to see. Maybe because our family ties have never been that great. It might be true for some of us, but for others, maybe for most of us, this is very, very hard to swallow. Our family ties are so close that in practice, those bonds seem to mean more than anything else. Or if we widen this out a bit, maybe you find yourself falling in love with an unbeliever. You feel that being with that person matters more than anything else. But don't you see, if you don't have this greater bond, if you're not united in love for Jesus, it can only end in pain. There's no other place that kind of relationship can go. In the end, our deepest loyalty has to come down to this. Who is with Jesus the Christ? 
and who is against them. In the end, our people are Jesus' people. That is what Jesus himself taught. In Mark's gospel, we find Jesus speaking in a house. And Mark tells us this. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So it's crucial you and I realize who our true family is. But that will not magically wipe out our grief. In 2 Samuel, we notice by the end of our passage, David is not dancing. Yes, he's got the point about true family. But that doesn't just wipe out his sorrow over a lost son. And that's probably how it will be for some of us. For some of us, we will have to wait for heaven before every tear is wiped away. For all the joy salvation brings us in this life, and for all the blessing the Christian fellowship brings, until heaven, we will have to carry some grief along with the joy and the blessing. We will carry that grief with us because some of those we love are lost. The victory of God's kingdom means some of us will mourn for sons and daughters and fathers and mothers. And in that situation, we might be tempted to get angry with God. Why does his justice have to hurt so much? But consider this, God has also felt the pain of victory. God the Father has a son. And that son died so God's kingdom could succeed. And God's son was not a rebel like Absalom. Yes, Jesus died the death of a rebel. We saw that last week. But he was innocent. He didn't deserve punishment. He died to take our punishment. He paid the price to win us forgiveness and freedom. And God the Father felt the pain of that victory. As we listen to God's word here in 2 Samuel, we realize, I hope, we do not have to pretend everything in life is great all the time. We can sing songs of lament as well as songs of celebration. We can grieve 
for those who are lost outside the kingdom. But as we grieve, let's remember we have a Father in heaven who knows our grief. We have a Savior who took up our pain and bore our suffering on the cross. And in the church, we have a family around us. We are united in Christ. Those bonds are the greatest bonds. And one day, the pain that we carry will give way finally to eternal joy. That's what God's word teaches us. And now we're going to respond to his word. First, by remembering the Father's love and then the promise. One day the pain of victory will be gone. Every tear will be wiped away. 